Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Hey, good morning, good morning. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. So it, this morning, we have an exciting guest. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Ami Tobin. He's the owner of Protection Circle. He's the director of consulting, training, and special operations for HICOM Security Services. But more importantly, he's an expert in covert operations. And that's going to be what we're going to be talking about today. He specializes in terrorist activity prevention, surveillance detection, covert protective operations, and boy, is that something we all need to know more about. So, Ami, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And um, I just realized that you were in San Francisco, so you're actually about 10 miles away from where we're broadcasting from today. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and our office is actually in Oakland, California, so I think it's uh, even closer. Interesting. Whereabouts in Oakland? Uh, so our office, the HICOM Security Services office, is on uh, 19th and Webster. So it's right there, okay. kind of downtown Oakland. All right, and my office is in Jack London Square. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <So>. very cool. <laughs> That's funny. Very funny. Well, welcome to the show. And um, Thank you. Ami, you were born and raised in Israel. Let's talk about that just a little bit. Sure. Um, so you were in the uh, Israeli mil- military? I was, yes. So um, uh, I guess to give you the gist, I I was born and raised in Israel. Uh, My family, my uh, parents and siblings, uh, everybody's pretty much still there. Um, As you can tell, my English is a little bit better than average. Uh, My family is American-Canadian, so I grew up bilingual, Hebrew and English. Mm. And I did my military service my mandatory military service in the IDF, uh, pretty much like everybody else. Uh, this was back in the mid-90s. And I uh-huh. became a tank commander and later on a, a company or staff sergeant. I see. Well, the world knows that probably the Israeli military is the best in the world. I mean, you guys have set the standard, really, for for what everybody else is doing. So... That's another reason why I'm excited about talking to you because I think this is very cool that you have is it that you translated your experience to what you're doing now. Yeah, you know, it, it's an interesting kind of thing. It's it's always uh, very uh, it's, it's a big compliment for for Israelis to to hear these uh, to hear people uh, say stuff like that about the IDF and about Israeli forces altogether. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very flattering, but uh, I think maybe to qualify it a little bit, not to denigrate what, we, what Israel does and what we did, but, but uh, Israelis often say that we are basically just more experienced. So it's not that we're geniuses. We've just seen pretty much everything that everybody else is experiencing uh, way more and started way earlier. 
So well, we're that just may more be true. experienced than we've been there. Uh, regarding military and, and regarding security altogether. We've just, say, for example, uh, terrorist activity prevention and counterterrorism. And these, these are things that Israel has been dealing with for many, many decades. So the fact that Israel got to the level that it got to is mostly a function of uh, a lot of unfortunate experience. But it is very true that uh, experience will raise your level, and, and Israel is very good in doing what it's doing. But uh, having said that, though, Ami, there are other country, countries that have experienced um, many of the same kind of things that Israel, maybe not as mm. concentrated and, and not as uh, frequently, but still, and ha- haven't nearly come to the level that Israel has. So still, I, I highly compliment uh, the Israeli military uh, and all the related operations that go around protecting Israel. Uh, that, uh, and I suppose that, that I have to accept that. That, that is true. And I, uh, as reluctant as I am, I'll have to accept a compliment or two. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. So, um, so we're going to talk about the covert operations today. Hmm. And you've written so many articles um, that is on your website. And let's just give your website because... Um, if you, I think it would take any person a week to read everything that's there at least. So why don't you give that uh, website right now? So the website, it's basically a blog website. It's protectioncircle.org. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's got uh, quite a few articles on there. It, I would recommend, the way I, I wrote these articles, there's a, a certain progression to them. So if you really want to start from the basics, from the beginning, Scroll all the way to the beginning to the first articles back in 2013, where I start sort of more generally speaking, talking about terrorism and talking about hostile activities, talking about proactive mindset, talking about hostile planning and case studies. And then I make my way into understanding how these things work, finding their vulnerabilities, and into protective operations where you basically uh, exploit the vulnerabilities of the hostile entity and use them against them. And, and then it just kind of just keeps going and going uh, from, from there on. So uh, it's, as I said, protectioncircle.org. And you can also find me on, on social media as well. You can get to it through my website. So you can find uh, Protection Circle on uh, LinkedIn and on Facebook oh. And on Twitter, okay. so uh, yeah, that, that, that's also a good way to sort of keep track of things where I, I, I post more than just my, my articles. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, it's no longer become a terrorist activity or watching for terrorist activity. It's, it's no longer become just left up to the experts. We all have to be aware today. I mean, look what happened in England yesterday. Indeed, and yeah. We, we all have to be aware um, you know, the old adage, see something, tell someone. Mm, or say something, yeah. yeah. All, and and or, yesterday's or attack in, yeah. in London is, uh, I don't think, from my memory, I don't think it's actually happened in London. It's happened in other places. And, of course, it's happened many, many times, pretty much exactly the same case, where you have a, uh, a vehicle attack on pedestrians, and then an assailant who runs out of the vehicle, either armed with either uh, firearms or, like in this case, uh, bladed weapons, 
and starting attacks, attacking people, um, injured people or just people around. So uh, Israel's seen quite a bit of it. There's actually a, a number of, of YouTube videos that you can see of attacks exactly of this sort in Israel. And yeah, I mean, experience leads to sort of a better understanding. And these things, at least when they happen in Israel, and they still do happen from time to time, they, they are stopped mm-hmm. very quickly because it doesn't really surprise people all that much when it does happen, unfortunately, because it's happened so many right. times. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's I, up to me. Sorry, what? That is the unfortunate part because we've lost, we've all lost our innocence. <laughs> so we just have to be a, be prepared for anything every day, and no matter how safe you think you the community you live in, it isn't. Yeah, or at least it isn't. To, it isn't to uh, uh, it, it, nothing is a hundred percent safe. Uh, it's uh, I find that when I when I start, I do a lot of training and a lot of consulting. Mm-hmm. It's basically, it's, well, it's in my job title, too. And I find that when people get introduced to such things, to terrorism and altogether to hostile activity and hostile activity prevention, what initially happens to you, especially when you also when you see attacks like this, is the initial thing is like this, I wouldn't say a shock, but it, it throws people into a heightened sense of vigilance and fear and... Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say anything bad about it. And I'm just going to, I just say that you have to learn at a certain point, as I think many Israelis have learned, to accept a certain amount of this. And it's a crazy thing to accept, but it's simply a part of life. So learning about it, it, it again, will initially sort of really, really raise your consciousness and, and raise your anxiety level about any and all security-related things. And then over time, you learn how to balance it out a little bit. You learn how to still live a normal life while mm-hmm. still knowing that these things can happen and that you should be able to respond to them. Right, right, right. Well, let's talk about, um, let's, let's just talk about covert operations and sure. um, setting and this is a little bit different than what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, being aware. But uh, part of being aware is setting up the right kind of covert operation. So um, one of the things that I read that you said that uh, was important is that um, anything you do that's predictable is detectable. And I thought that was a fascinating statement. Mm-hmm. So you want to expand on that a little bit? Sure. Um, you can take it, this statement in, in, in many, kind, many ways, but I guess from if you, if you want to apply it to what's good about people being predictable, because most people, if you know what to look for, most people are predictable. We are creatures of, of, nat- uh, of habit, as they say. And if you apply this idea to hostile planners, hostile surveyors, hostile entities, and understand that they have to go through some form, some length of hostile planning, then you understand that the, when people plan, when people observe something, when people p- conduct hostile surveillance, there's certain things that happen to them, certain levels of anxiety, certain balances that they have to strike between 
their need to observe and their desire to keep it covert that makes people very nervous. So you have the most predictable situations where somebody is spending a large amount of time, a long amount of time outside looking nervous, uh, seeming out of place, observing from time to time and so forth, which is a good thing that it's predictable because you would want to, pr- to be able to detect something like that, something mm-hmm. that looks like a person who's conducting hostile surveillance. So you, you can then detect something like that and expose it and acknowledge and, and, uh, and do whatever you need to do uh, to prevent it from uh, progressing. But once you apply it to yourself, when you are the one who, are, who is conducting covert operations. And I want to make it very clear that the types of covert operations that I conduct, that I manage, that I train, are protective operations. So I'm, I'm not in the field of uh, offensive operations or even so much in the field of investigations. I am not a private investigator who goes out and follows people myself. I am in the field of detecting people who do such things. So in order to detect such things, you do need to understand how it works. You do need to understand how it feels and how to do it yourself to then be able to know what to predict. So all these mannerisms and all these ticks and all these little mistakes in the field and, and certain aspects that if you know what to look for, uh, you, you're going to find. And in, in many ways, you do actually have to experience it. Experience mm-hmm. something like uh, mobile surveillance, for example, to follow a, a, a certain ta- a target and to experience those levels of anxiety, to experience those oh crap moments when the target suddenly stops and turns around and what do I do, what do I do, he's coming right at me, sort of double takes and shuffles and little things like that because only after you experience those little mannerisms, you know how to find them in other people. And then right. you know how to detect those expected situations. That if, if it's expected that somebody will get nervous about something, then it becomes more predictable and you can detect it easier. So in your role, Ami, you would say this would be a situation of executive protection, somebody that's high profile that um, needs additional assistance or needs to make sure that they're not being followed or watched? Is that the kind of thing you're doing? There is that as well. So that's not the only kind, but yes, I've done plenty of that. And there's also the type that is applied to facilities and special events that take place in, uh, I suppose, large venues, I should say. So it's not so much, it's not an executive protection per se, because even though there are all, mm. always executives in there, mm. your mm. efforts are more focused on the entire property. Um, but the point I want to make about that, I think an important point to make about this type of covert protective operations, surveillance detection, and, and other forms of, uh, of detection, is that it's not there to replace your conventional or overt measures, be they event security mm-hmm. or executive close protection. It's not there to replace it. It's there to augment it. It's there to add an additional external layer around your internal physical layer that you have around your biggest asset. Uh, the external layer is because that's basically where any hostile act, hostile individual will come from. 
by definition, people have to come from the outside and make their way towards the, their targets, towards mm-hmm. your asset. And if you want a, an early warning of what's coming, either what's coming physically for the actual attack or mm-hmm. what's coming in a little bit more roundabout way as far as hostile planning before they're ready for the attack. So that's the, that external layer that we spread around Okay, so so let's get into the base, basics and how you actually develop a cover. Sure. <clears throat> so um, I guess that, that it, obviously cover always really depends on the environment and on the situation. I define a cover as the visual projection of what you want people to think you are and what you want people to think you're doing, which obviously depends very much on the location and the situation. What you want to people think you are is obviously not true. What you are is a covert protective operator. You don't want people or a covert surveillance detector. Uh, And what you don't want people to think is that that's what you are. You want them to think that you're something else. So it's basically a visual lie. What I in many cases, want people to think. For starters, I don't really want them to think too much about me altogether. So when you're talking about a cover, the best types of covers are the ones that are boring. I'm big on, on this idea of boring. The, the, the goal here is for a person to never even pay you enough attention to wonder, hey, who is that guy and what, what is he doing? You're just part of the mm-hmm. theory. You're, you're nothing. You're dressed in the most boring way. You're doing the most boring things. They don't even see you. You're one out of 50,000 people on the street who's on their cell phone or walking around or sitting somewhere and, and nobody ever even pays you attention. So for starters, I find that that's really the, the way you want to you wanna begin as far as, as a cover. Make it boring. Whatever it is, wherever you are, be it a homeless person in an area where there are a lot of homeless people, be it someone who's the most boring kind of business casual if you're walking around or hanging out in a downtown situation, something really, really bland and boring. And from there on, from then on, you can work a little bit on more details if it comes to it, if, if somebody does pay more attention to you. What is your actually, what, what are you trying to project, if, if at all? And only once you've finished with that process, do you want to move into a cover story, which is a verbal representation of what you, of what you want people to think you are. So it's the mm-hmm. verbal lie in addition to the visual lie. It obviously has to work together with the cover. So if you look like a certain person, you want to talk like that certain person too, if it comes to it. Hopefully it will not come to it, but it, occasionally it does. And your cover story should just represent it in the most boring kind of way. Again, the boring kind of way. So a person who, uh, I suppose, uh, made the mistake of asking you who you are, you're just going to bore them away by being absolutely nothing, and they're going to forget about you as soon as they turn around and walk away. What, what are some of the mistakes people make in doing that? So the most common mistakes I see is the, I guess it, before I, I talk about mistakes, I, I should say that, that many, many of the people who get into this kind of 
business. Are people with military, law enforcement, government, agency, sector kind of work, mostly military and law enforcement, and these are people with somewhat of a serious, kind of active, kind of switched on type of mentality, and part of the mistake is that they don't quite understand that they're projecting that out, that they're projecting uh, a level of control, of visual control, of awareness, and so forth, because it's second, it's first nature, not even second nature to many other people, mm-hmm. and that's not always a good thing. In addition and, to that... Yeah, and Ami, there's so many pieces yeah. of that. I mean, it's not just what somebody wears, it's how they stand, it's how they, exactly. their posture. If you're, exactly. if you're former law enforcement, there's a stance, you can spot somebody across the room. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, I see it all the time. It's, it's not even just the stand, even, even before the, the, the stance, it's, it's your hair, it's, the, it's your ex- the expression on your face, it's mm. the clothes you wear. And I, I, I think another big one, another big tip, and I, I give this in, in one of my articles, is that this idea of dress casually doesn't quite work in that case, because what's casual to you represents what you normally wear. And what you normally wear is a function of your personality and your background. So what, mm-hmm. you, what you very often get are people with that classic jeans, untucked, buttoned-up shirt that's perfect for concealing a radio or, or a weapon, uh, very comfortable or even sometimes tactical shoes, You've got Oakley mm-hmm. sunglasses, you have ruggedized mm-hmm. cell phone covers and, and, and G-Shock type watches and, and you got all these things working together with that stance and your hair and that expression that is just, it just makes it too easy. You're, you're, you're too easily detected as somebody who's sort of too switched on. So what you want to do, mm-hmm. what I always recommend for people is to dim it down, be, be that sort of bland, dim-witted person on the street who has that sort of duh kind of expression on their face. That's where you want to be. And it goes against your personality, which is the reason why you need to practice this and you, and you need to get better at it. Because if you just go and be yourself, you're going to be detected as the type of person who, who has that kind of background. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, I mean, in addition to that, you see the, you know, the, the, the leather jackets or, or uh, people want to dress down, so they'll put on those hoodies and stuff like that. I, I am a big fan of the business casual. That, that, I think, is the perfect kind of look. It's, for starters, it's boring. It's not too nice, and it's not too dressed down. It'll get you in and out of most places, from office buildings and hotel lobbies and, and stores and anywhere you, you might need to go, and won't really attract anyone's attention. You don't look particularly anything to anybody. Uh, and it just so it covers a really sort of wide range. Okay, so your definition of business casual, is that like slacks and a sport coat, maybe an open neck shirt? Is that what would you yeah, call business I, I, casual? Yeah, I usually define it as, as some kind of slacks, uh, slacks or khakis with a business shirt, a buttoned-up shirt tucked into it, not, not untucked. And I know that this, is, this might be an issue for many people, especially if, the job entails concealing a weapon, and that becomes a lot more difficult. The mm-hmm. operations I do 
are unarmed. And it's, it's actually stipulated in many cases that it's, it has to be unarmed. It's what our clients want us to be. And it's, it's a necessity and it also sort of helps you because when you tuck in that shirt, you're revealing, and you don't necessarily have a, a jacket or a coat over it, you basically reveal the fact that you're, you're not concealing anything because there are people, either people trained like me or police officers or street smart type of street crime people who will notice that combo of comfortable shoes, jeans, untucked shirt as a classic sort of concealing a weapon or radio for somebody who's trying maybe not all that successfully to, to go undercover and they don't really understand that it's, it's not that difficult to detect that if you know what to look for. So tuck in that shirt, look nerdy, look disarming, uh, look somewhat bored and boring and dim-witted. And that, I think, is, is, is the best type of, of appearance. That's, those are great tips. So, so what kinds of mistakes do people, because you talked about uh, establishing a cover story to go with the persona you're presenting, what kind of mistakes yeah. do people make when they're in their cover story? So I, I sort of covered the, the, the people who are a little bit too sort of switched on and, and tactical. I think a lot of people make the mistake of, of coming up with a cover story before they come up with a cover. And that's usually a mistake because in many cases, it will not be boring enough. People put too much into it and it becomes too interesting. Uh, so I think a very common type of, com- of uh, cover story issue that I've seen is the attempt to be as disarming as you can, as harmless as you can, but you don't notice that it makes you a little bit more interesting. So for example, a classic is the tourist. I'm a tourist. I'm new in town. I've just come from New York and I'm walking around with my camera and I'm completely harmless and I'm completely nice and completely friendly and smiley. And without noticing it, you are now a little bit more noticeable because you are now, you will now be remembered if spotted again by a person who's talked to you. Oh, look, there's that tourist from New York. Hey, how's he doing? I wonder if he's lost. Now they're going to notice you because now you, they did not forget you as soon as they walked away. And if they see you again, they will notice you. So the, 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 the best cover story would be the, the most boring one. Uh, again, it, it really depends on your cover. If you're a homeless person, which ideally will mean that nobody will ever even talk to you. But if they do, you'll just sort of bore them with whatever uh, harmless homeless person uh, cover story you want to give them. And if it's something else, if it's a business casual or just a person on the street, just nothing of any interest. I, it, it's difficult for me to sort of give specifics here because it mm-hmm. really, really depends. But nothing of any kind of specifics. So what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of between jobs. I'm unemployed. I don't, I don't really have too much going on right now. And there's nothing for anybody to sort of latch on and, and remember you when they see you again. Oh, there's that guy I talked to before. He has that interesting job. Nothing interesting. That's uh, that's uh, I think a, a really good point, a really big pointer that I I find myself reminding people quite a bit. Right. What and what about making eye contact? Does that uh, make people remember you more? 
Yeah, it, it could. Uh, I can't really put a formula on any one thing, including eye contact. So acting naturally, I think, is the best kind of thing. So if you, let's say you're walking around or you're sitting and somebody looks at you and you happen to be looking that direction and there's eye contact for that initial second, go with it. Don't get excited about it because if you extend it one way or another, it might seem a little bit more noticeable. So if you maintain eye contact, obviously, the, the person mm-hmm. might remember you. But if you, if you completely avoid people's gaze, if you, as soon as you see somebody looking, if you turn your head immediately, well, that might go the opposite extreme and also mm-hmm. make you a little bit more suspicious. So sort of not going into any kind of extreme, sort of staying in the middle with what's bland and boring. Okay, that, those are really good tips, Ami. We're, we're going to have to take a break. We've got so much more to talk about, so we'll be sure. back in a couple of minutes. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Ami Tobin is an expert in the ins and outs of covert operations. And um, we just talked offline that when we come back, we're going to talk about just how you choose, if you're on a stationary kind of surveillance, how you choose that location. So take that and and tell us about it, Ami. Okay. So, well, obviously your, your static positions for surveillance really, really depend on what your mission is, what your goals are. 
let's maybe take, for example, a situation of surveillance detection. So surveillance detection that is conducted uh, for the security of a facility, of a building. It doesn't matter what building it is, if it's a government building, if it's a corporate headquarters, if it's a building that's hosting uh, a special event. So the first thing you want to figure out is where would the bad guys be? So what would be, uh, according to the hostile planning process, which is a a whole process, you can find a, a... pretty long article about that. According to the hostile planning process, where would a hostile surveyor probably be in order to conduct hostile surveillance and collect the intelligence that they need in order to put their plan together? So you basically do a whole surveillance survey, a surveillance mapping, which is another one of my articles, uh, around the, uh, the property in question, and you figure mm-hmm. out where those spots will be. And now the best way to figure that out is to put yourself in the shoes of the bad guys. Where would mm-hmm. I be in order to conduct hostile surveillance? So to, to give you a, an idea of how that looks, for hostile surveillance of this type, if you want to conduct it on a higher level, what you need is to combine two things. The first is obviously the observation factor. You have to be able to observe the target. That's the whole goal of collecting information by means of observation. But the other factor is a level of covertness. So the observation has to be coverted. You, you don't want people to, uh, to know, to realize that you're doing what you're doing as a hostile surveyor. So you have to hide that somehow. First thing you want to do is maybe get a little bit more distance between you, the hostile surveyor, and your intended target. And the second thing you want is to find a location, a vantage point, which combines both the ability to observe and some type of justification, a visual justification for you to be there for a long period of time. So, mm-hmm. in other words, for another person who observes you to not see anything out of the ordinary. So, you can think of, let's say, a park bench at a distance of a block or two away from the target as something that's not too bad because a park bench is meant for people to sit on it. You're not standing in the middle of the street sticking out like a sore thumb. You're sitting on a bench, which is the purpose of the bench. You have a good Mm -hmm. amount of distance. And if you happen to be spending a lot of time there, then then so be it. But to take it to even a higher level, you want to maybe figure out what kind of people usually sit on that bench or on the benches in that park If, let's say, there are only homeless people who hang out on those benches, well, then it would be a better idea to give yourself a cover of a homeless person to then go and sit on that bench and appear to anybody who's observing as somebody who's just completely a part of the environment, what they're used to seeing in that environment. Another good vantage point would be a coffee shop. There's a lot of coffee shops. In, without getting into too many details, there's many coffee shops in many areas that are involved in certain ways in surveillance and surveillance detection, uh, downtown-type areas and so forth. Coffee shops, many of them have uh, windows or outside seating. And a coffee shop, unlike a restaurant, is a place where you can sit pretty much all day long if you want to, and it justifies mm-hmm. your presence there. And if you can observe the target, it makes 
a lot of sense. It doesn't look odd that a person is sitting in a coffee shop all day versus a person who's standing in the middle of the street all day. So all of that is a function, a part of your surveillance. Be it hostile surveillance, I shouldn't necessarily restrict it just to hostile surveillance. Any, of, any kind of surveillance, investigative surveillance of looking for a vantage point because you, you will need to spend a, a large amount of time in a place looking for a good vantage point that will combine the ability to observe and some type of justification for spending a lot of time there, which to somebody observing doesn't look out of the ordinary. So you, don't, you look boring and, and so forth. Now, if you want to take a step further and get into surveillance detection of how to detect somebody who's doing exactly that, so for starters, you have to start by experiencing exactly that and know what it feels like and how it looks like. But then right. as far as surveillance detection, the, generally speaking, what you want to be is outside of the range, outside of the field of vision of the person conducting surveillance, of the person who you're trying to detect. So <clears throat> you can think of the, the surveyor, the hostile surveyor, and their target as we sometimes refer to it as the red zone, which is the, the radius around the target uh, that a hostile surveyor could be in. And as a surveillance detection, you'd want to be outside of that red zone. Basically, if possible, in an ideal situation, you're not always going to find ideal situations, but in an ideal situation, you want to be behind the hostile surveyor. And the mm-hmm. benefit to, to being there is to being behind the hostile surveyor or outside the red zone is that if you have a good enough location, not only can you see both the surveyor from behind, albeit, but you can see the surveyor and you can see the target. And what, what that means is that you can, you can observe a correlation, which is basically what surveillance detection is based on. You can observe the correlation of observation between the surveyor and the target. And while doing that, you can be outside the field of vision of the surveyor, thereby maintaining your own covertness as you conduct surveillance detection. So it's, it's, it's really just a question of how far, how deep you want to go with this. And, but a, generally and a good speaking, technique, yeah, yeah and a, no, and ahead, a good please. technique if you were in a coffee shop would be to be, uh, to go as a couple, for example, right? That would be a good, yeah, a good uh, cover. That would be a very, yeah, the, the, the couple idea is, is very good. You, you, bit, you almost bring your cover with you when you do that. It obviously works in a coffee shop, but it, it works also pretty well just on the street or on a street corner. Or uh, if you have two people, ideally a man and a woman, even if you're just sort of sitting on a, on a street corner, like on a bench or something, which a single quintessential uh, male by himself sort of covert operator might stick out after a while. Mm-hmm. A couple doing it doesn't really stick out as much because the justification for what they're doing is, well, they're a couple, they're hanging out, they're talking, they're, they're doing whatever, whatever couples do. And it doesn't, it doesn't really stand out as a lone person spending a mm-hmm. lot of time on their own in, in a location like that. And, and one of the things that I noticed uh, that you wrote about Ami was that, uh, a couple, even if they came together, met, met, say, at the coffee shop, they should uh, 
they should stay together. They shouldn't separate and go their separate ways. They need to, if they're on, <laughs> if they're on a surveillance, because it's too obvious that they're doing um, separate activities regarding something that may be covert. Yeah, this is this is kind of a, 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 a sort of a fundamental tip that that I learned back when I did my my own training is that you never in the field itself you never want to meet or split up if you're working together. So if you're working together, you want to arrive together and leave together. No meetups, mm-hmm. no split ups. It's not that to meet up and to split up is something uh, suspicious in any way. I mean, you see people doing that all the time on the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or whatever in, in, any, in any place in coffee shops or what have you. But it does stand out a little bit more than people who come together. Again, not, just because it stands out doesn't mean it stands out as suspicious and somebody is going to suspect you of doing anything. It's enough that it just stands out because mm-hmm. if a person sees you again, then it will be sort of a frame of reference of, oh, here's that guy that came with that girl. and they, like, it, it, It'll just sort of come to their mind that... They mm-hmm. saw you before because they notice you coming together or meeting or, sorry, you notice you meeting or, or splitting up. So if you come, to get, you come together, leave together. And I think the worst thing you can do, and I've actually seen this and uh, almost stood up and applauded to the people who did this during operations. And I'm talking about people who actually are trying to penetrate into, into certain venues for enacting such a quintessential and such an easy thing for us to detect is the people who you see them arrive in the area together, in some cases even huddles of people, and then they split up and, and separately try to enter one by one into the, uh, into the property, into the venue or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that is just such an easy giveaway because they never think that somebody might be looking at where they met, say, a block or half a block away, and they all had their little huddle where they planned out, okay, let's split up and, and go in there separately. And if you know what to look for, those kinds of things are really easy to see. So what I hear you saying, Ami, is that your cover literally has to start from the time you leave the door of your office or your residence and, and go to where you're going. You you can't you can't change your you you can't start out as you for example and then get a block away from where where you're going your target area and change your persona. I would say I mean if you want to go extreme about it yeah you could do that um, I would say that you you can if you want leave your house you know just normally and then establish your cover somewhere but don't establish it a block away I mean, mm-hmm. establish it a little bit further than that. Because if anybody's looking, uh, that, that might be a little bit too close. So, again, if you want to just play it safe, just leave your house looking like you want to look. And then you don't have to, you don't have to worry about anything. It. You just, you yeah. Know. Okay, let's, let's talk about bus stops. Because I, I found your, your information about bus stops really interesting. Yeah, the bus stop is kind of a fun one. It, it comes... It comes up a lot during training, uh, but I, it has also come up during actual operations. It, usually when you're, you are somewhere in a city, somewhere downtown, uh, you either have to uh, go mobile after somebody or you're looking for a, a, a good static position. And if you don't find any sort of park benches or 
coffee shops with big windows or, or convenient things like that, then a lot of people are tempted to use bus stops because bus stops will often be conveniently located, not too close or not too, fa- not too far from where you're trying to keep track of. And you see people there and there are people standing and sitting and so forth. And it just, at first glance, it looks like a perfect spot, you know, and I can just blend into the bus stop and, uh, and conduct my surveillance or surveillance detection from the bus stop. But the problem with that is that as far as the justification for being somewhere, there's really only one legitimate justification for being in a bus stop, which is to catch a bus. To get on a bus. And <laughs> if, you, if you are not, if you don't eventually get on a bus and you just keep hanging out there, it will eventually begin to, to stick out. Now, I have to qualify mm-hmm. this. There are some locations. Downtown Oakland, for example, has a lot of people hanging out in bus stops that don't mm-hmm. get on buses. So, again, it, it always, always depends on the environment and the situation. But <clears throat> generally speaking, you can only justify your presence in a bus stop for, I don't know, say 20 minutes, 25 minutes, maybe something like that, 30 minutes maybe. Uh, but eventually you're going to have to get on a bus because that, mm-hmm. if anybody's watching you, it'll sort of stick out that you spent all that time in a bus stop and then walked away from the bus stop. So you have to get on the bus, which isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. I mean, you can get on a bus and get off the next stop if it's, let's say, two or three blocks away and just circle back and and then go to maybe another vantage point if Mm -hmm. that is appropriate and, and possible. And another sort of classic tip is that if you will, if you absolutely have to or insist on standing in the bus stop, make sure to look to the direction that most that everybody else is looking because you have to notice what people do in a bus stop. And the people who stand around and look, they, they usually look to the direction where the bus would be coming from. Right. And it's a, sort of a classic mistake to be the only person looking the opposite way if your target happens to be on the opposite side of the bus stop and be the only person looking the wrong way right. <laughs> when everybody else around you is looking for where the bus is coming from because they're, they want to catch that bus. So it's, a, it's and, a kind of an know, interesting thing. And you could you take that, that lesson and apply it to the rest of covert operations where you have to be very conscious of the people around you and what they're doing. And this is, it sounds easier said than done because yeah. when you're on yeah. your operation, you have your, your, mission, you have your goals, you have your parameters, you're dealing with your own types of, of stresses, and it's very difficult to keep track of the little nuanced things of what everybody else is doing around you, like, for example, where everybody's heads are facing, and you're looking the, the, the wrong way. Oh, well, I love that, Ami, because it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that you've mentioned that is so obvious when you mention it, but if you're if you're actually doing the work, you think somehow people think when they're on uh, covert surveillance that they're inv- invisible and nobody else is noticing what they're doing. Mm. So, <laughs> so that's it's, that's a perfect yeah. example. I love it. It's one of the classic classic uh, uh, mistakes to to think that nobody notices you. The uh, one of the principles in, in covert operations is to is to always assume that somebody's watching you. Uh, mm-hmm. Either that someone's behind you or next to you or looking at you long distance with binoculars or, 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 or to, in many cases, assume that there's the eye in the sky kind of situation that, that sees everything from, from up there. 
and, and don't try as much as you can not to, not to look out of the ordinary or to move in any way that sets you apart from the other people on the street. And it's, it's a very, very challenging kind of thing to do. It's, it's, as I said, you, you're dealing with your own types of stresses and goals, mm-hmm. and it's very, very difficult to do. But it's one of the fundamentals of always assume that somebody's watching you. So when you train people on these kind of operations, Ami, do you uh, send them out on a surveillance and then have somebody uh, shadow them and see what they're doing? So all the people that, that I use are people that I trained myself in the company. Okay. Uh, okay. These are people that are, for starters, these are people that are very trusted. I only use people who I've worked with for years and years in protective operations altogether. And I trust them and, and we've done a lot of stuff together in the field. And then we take it to the next level of learning uh, how, to, how to conduct covert operations, of how to, how, to work on, how to work covertly, how to detect surveillance and, uh, and so forth. Okay, you know, so, uh, but, um, but when you train them, do you actually uh, follow them around without them knowing it to see what they're doing, what you trained them to do? Yes, yeah, so during training, there, there's, tra- training is, is kind of a tricky thing, and it's a very interesting kind of thing. So the, the, mo- for starters, most training, most of the time during training, you're training outdoors, you're training in the field. There's a very little classroom kind of work and you're training in the field, and your training basically starts from learning how to conduct surveillance. Learning, in our case, it's learning to, to, to be the hostile, to put yourself in the shoes of the bad guys, to, to go through what they're going through, and then to, to know and understand from an experience level what it feels like, what it feels like to make a mistake, what it feels like to, to have to conduct surveillance and justify your presence in certain places. And I want to make it very clear, by the way, I, I talk about all these mistakes that people made. I have made mm-hmm. every single one of these mistakes. <laughs> and it, it's really the only way to learn how, exactly. uh, about the mistake altogether and how to overcome it. So I, I don't want it to sound like I'm, I'm above uh, everybody else's level. I have, I have, and I still do, by the way. And so does everybody else from time to time make certain mistakes. But so sure. the training is teach people how to do surveillance and then you take it to the next level of teaching them how to detect people who do surveillance. And the way to do that is you get them to take their surveillance detection vantage points and then you work with covert role players. Basically, you have role players, people who you employ for this purpose, people who either operators that I've trained before or people who I've trained just for the the sake of being a role player, and they will go into the field. These are people who the trainees do not know, and these are people who go out and basically conduct surveillance on the target, and the trainees have to detect the people who are doing this, detect the people who are today doing what they learned how to do yesterday. And though you do it in some of the same locations, and you know where the vantage points are, and you even expect to see a certain thing, I can tell you that experience is really, really powerful because it is way, way harder than you think. On, in mm-hmm. theory, this whole idea of the, 
of the cover and cover story and, and, and justifying your presence and the bus stop and all that kind of stuff sounds really, really simple. And in theory, it sounds really simple to observe and to notice somebody who's conducting surveillance. But in practice, it is very, very difficult. And once again, as it was for me as well, it took me years mm-hmm. To, uh, to get better and better at this. Okay, so Ami, we have uh, about three minutes left. Can you quickly mm-hmm. tell people what mistakes they make with cell phones when they're on surveillance? Uh, so cell phones, I, I have also a part of, of the article where, where I said that it could be your, your best friend or your worst enemy. Best friend because... For starters, it could be a, a, just a completely legitimate, very often, for me, most often, most common means of communication, uh, mm-hmm. actual tactical communication, because texting and calls, because that's what everybody else does. So there's no reason for you to try to conceal a radio and so forth. But uh, issues with cell phone that I see are if you are going to report something on a cell phone, which means you're going to talk to somebody, either another operator or your point of contact that you Mm -hmm. want to report something. And if you report it in a way that sounds really tactical, keep in mind that in addition to somebody always watching you kind of idea, uh, that somebody is always listening to you as well. And if you report something like Target is, uh, is going southbound on Market Street. If somebody hears you say something like that, I mean, boy, isn't that going to kind of turn their head? Well, what's up with that guy? What's mm-hmm. going on? Who says that? So you have to come up with certain ways of talking on the phone that just sound a lot, you know, just normal. So, uh, hey, I think Ted's walking, um, I think we're going down Market Street, right? Uh, so, you know, w- whatever it might be. Right. To make yeah. it sound more normal. And to not just come on the phone and say one sentence, like you would on a radio, of course, and then to put your phone down or back in your pocket, uh, but to pretend to keep on talking. Because, again, that's what people usually do with their phone. They don't call somebody to say one sentence and then put their phone back in their pocket. Uh, So you don't have to fill your network up with chatter, but you just just pretend to keep talking after you cut the, the, the conversation off. Uh, to just sort and of your, sound and... Hmm? Yeah, I was just going to say, and your other tip is that I thought was a big tip is t- not to use hands-free uh, earpieces or something like that. Just use the yeah. phone. Yeah, I'm not a fan. I've, I've seen, it's, it's something that's very, very common. I still see people doing it. I still see covert operators doing it. And it's one of the, one of the easiest giveaways. I see it in... Uh, uh, covert security, covert operators in, in airports and, and in other places where the, the, the guy with the, the earpiece dangling down from the ear, be it a covert, right. a supposedly covert one, exactly. or be it just a normal cell phone one, yeah, just, just, just talk on your phone. I would recommend. Okay. Ami, we have to go. We're, we're at the end of our time. This has been really I, let fascinating. Let me give you just one last plug-in, if, if I may, okay. in addition okay. to all the, the stuff about my, my website and the articles and everything. Uh, I have a book coming up, coming okay. out, uh, hopefully in the end of the spring or the beginning of the summer that basically encapsulates uh, everything that I've been doing that's going on. It's an expose on this entire field and industry, so it gives everybody a lot of goodies. If you liked, if you liked what you heard, uh, you're going to get a whole lot more of it in the book you know that's what? We'll coming have, out. 
we'll have you back on the show when the book comes out, Ami. Awesome. Okay. So we have to go. And, folks, thank you for listening. And thank you, Ami. This has been fabulous. And thank I you, hope Francis. to hear more from you and maybe meet you in person. So tune in again sure next thing. week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and people like Ami Tobin. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 